Kia ora, and welcome to Oho Ake Books. My name is Fareus Lysander. This is going to be an interesting podcast because I want to talk about my addictions and where they've brought me to, and also some pretty funny anecdotes. Funny now, of course, but not at the time, about my addictions. And I'm going to relate my addictions to my books. Somewhere in here, I'm going to find a way to relate my addictions to my writing. I can think of right away a couple of places I can talk about that I've talked about already in regards to my own personal healing experience and also about the short stories of Pablo Wairua and seeing how that came together. But I'm going to flow here. I'm going to flow on in the flow state. I'm going to talk about my addictions. And then from there, I'm going to see if any insights come into this podcast. Off the cuff, uh, come into this podcast about my personal addictions and how they made me the writer I am today. And also my short stories and my novels have any precedence, have any connection or correlation between my addictions and my writing. Mm. I'm drinking a kombucha, ginger and lemon low rose living drinks. I love this shit. I fucking love it. All right. I used to have my own booch, but my my, uh, my scobia gave away to somebody, and it was about 300 layers thick. It was enormous. It was a massive scobia. It was like in one of those gallon glass jars. It was so big. I gave it away. I can't remember what I gave it away to. I must have peeled off 10 or 15 scobies off that scobie to give away to other people before I gave it to somebody else to take eventually. I love booch. I couldn't drink it for a while because I got really sick. But that is actually a podcast I'll talk about another time because I want to get into a health podcast as well about my own personal health. But addictions. Let's start with alcohol. Alcohol has a big part to play in my father's side of the family. His side of the family is full of alcoholics. Chocker, full of them. And I mean to the brim, to the head of the glass, to the fat head of that frothy top, full of alcoholics. Now, I am aware of the fact that there is a gene in the body, a gene that can be turned on to create alcoholism. I'm aware of that. Uh, I'm aware of the science behind that. And I'm also aware of the fact that my father's propensity to drink took me to a place as well where I began to drink heavily too. And what became of me was I stopped drinking when I was 22, 23. I drank again when I was 20, crikey, I would have been 27, 28, 29. I started drinking again, but only red wine to go with my other addiction at the time, cocaine. But back to alcohol first, right, alcohol. I first started drinking when I was at high school. I would have started drinking when I was 14, 15 years old, 15, 16 really, and I really got into it with my friends at high school. We used to get fucking tanked. We had a can of Lion Red, which is this horrible, horrible beer. <laughs> As you do when you're a kid, right? We've got this horrible beer called Lion Red in Auckland when I was living up there, and we used to get a tray of it. Someone would go and buy a tray, you know, pretend to be 18, and they'd give us the alcohol. And my mother would be away somewhere, either on a date or visit, hanging out with friends, and me and my school friends would get together and we'd drink the entire tray between four of us, usually, 
and someone would be a sober driver, and then we'd sneak off and try and get to pubs and parties, as you do, right, high school. And uh, often we'd, get to, we'd go to this underage nightclub in the city called Keeley's in Auckland, which is no longer there, I think, <laughs> beneath the Civic Theatre, <laughs> in the back of the Civic Theatre, I should say. Running back, indeed. Uh, we used to go in there. My mother's partner at the time, Dean, was working there as one of the bouncers there. So we got him quite often. We'd go in there and we'd get fucking smashed. Right? Absolutely tanked. And my drinking didn't really get to excess until my second year, third year of university, actually. My third year of university, I'm really off the deep end. But before that happened, I had some experiences in my drinking where I came to terms with the fact that drinking so heavily as I did was very dangerous and almost lethal on a couple of occasions. Now I want to relate to those occasions shortly, but I want to talk about the nature of my drinking and why I drunk the way I did and why I became an alcoholic. Now having it in my family bloodline from my father's side, my genes, doesn't help. It doesn't help to be in a situation where you know if you drink, sometimes you can't stop drinking, or the fact that you are using drink as a tool of suppression and repression for your trauma and all that you feel. I never learned how to express my emotions as a child. All I expressed when I was a child in regards to my emotional expressions were the, <laughs> were the extremes of emotion. Anger, fear, joy, jubilation. <laughs> I never really learned how to ex- express myself and say what I needed to say to somebody, to a parent, to say, look, I feel this way, this is what's going on, and this is how I feel right now. I feel scared, I feel lonely, I feel afraid, I feel... I need to talk to you about something. I never had that ability to write to my parents that way. I don't blame my parents for who they are. They are who they are. I love them for who they are. My father passed away in 2000. But my mother, I don't, I don't look at her and blame her for anything that I've been through. She did her very best that she could with what she knew. And what she knew was the best that she, that she did. And I don't blame her for anything. There's no blame here. There's no, this is not about blaming anyone. This is about me coming to terms with the fact that for so long in my life, my trauma would come up and I would find a way to suppress it. Now, for me, suppressing my trauma came through many, many ways. When I was a child, sugar was a big one for me. I'd go, I would, just, it would I'd have massive sugar spikes. I eat plenty of sugar in my, as a child because that was my go-to. You know, my thing I went to that made me feel good about who I was, physiologically anyway. The sugar rush I had always made me feel fantastic. Emotional support food, right? It was always sugar for me. And later on in life, sugar became an issue for me in regards to my candida. My candida had got, had got so out of, out of control and out of balance that my candida situation in my body forced my body to, well, didn't force my body, but I had colonies of candidiasis throughout my entire body and all of my organs. And later on, my fingers became big, fat sausage fingers. I had uh, tinea magnum on my fingers, and my skin was cracking open with a fungal infection on my, on my hands so badly that I'd bleed, like stigmata from my palms and my fingers, and my fingers when my fingers were opening up. I couldn't close a fist without my fingers, my skin on my hand breaking and bleeding because the fungal infection was that bad. Because the nature of the fact that my candida had gotten out of control. But I had horrendous eczema as a child, horrendous eczema. And that was due to the nature of my stress, I think, but also an allergic reaction to vaccinations. 
I really feel that now looking back at it. But I was under a lot of duress growing up as a child, and my body was just covered from head to toe in eczema. I used to bathe in alpha carry lotion, which is this form of, I guess it's like a conditioner for the skin that would kind of alleviate the soreness of the rashes that were all over my, all over my body from my neck down to my feet. I was just covered in eczema. And my sisters have both had this situation too with eczema, my older sister especially. I relate that also to diet, but also to vaccinations, but also as well, it's a combination of all three and the levels of stress that I was under definitely put my body into a, into a situation where I was constantly under a lot of duress due to the nature of my upbringing. When I could drink, by then my eczema had taken a back seat, so to speak. My body was going through changes hormonally. Uh, I felt better about who I was to the point where I was able to you know, able to hold my own, even though I didn't know who I really was, that would come later. I began to have a self-discovery drive after my after I finished my drinking experience. I quit drinking and I had to meditate. That's when I began to discover who I was and what I was. But before that, I was drinking to excess um, quite often at university. I went to Otago University here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is back in the early 90s when I was there. From 1990 to 1993, 92 actually, I graduated in 92. It was a drinking culture, like you would not believe. There's no other university I can think of apart from Lincoln that had a drinking culture like Otago. We drank to excess often. You know, I've said this before, I think, in other podcasts and on videos. We drank to excess, <laughs> to fucking excess, and often. And I got to the point where I was drinking so heavily that I was drinking and holding down my, my uh, university experience. I was going to lectures, still drunk quite often from the night before. That's not unusual, though, for Otago. I remember many students would come to, come to lectures early in the morning wearing dressing, dressing gowns and pajamas and slippers, walking down from their houses into, from North Dunedin into the university, dressed in dressing gowns, slippers and pajamas, and a pack of cigarettes or a cigarette hanging out their mouth, go to the lecture, sit in the lecture, put the cigarette out, go into the lecture, take notes, or fall asleep in the lecture, then then wake up at the end of the lecture, go back home and go back to bed. That was, wasn't unusual. When I was down there, we were, it was pretty lawless, man. It was like the wild, wild west down there, but we drunk heavily. We drank to excess, and we did crazy, crazy shit when we were pissed. I mean, fuck. I mean, looking back at it now, the stuff we got up to. But I digress. My drinking, yeah, by my second year at university, I was drinking a lot. I was drinking a lot, and I was losing my memory. As I became more and more despondent about and not knowing who I was, as I began to feel more and more alienated by the people I was hanging out with, the people I considered to be friends, at the time, who began to alienate me because of just the fact that it didn't like me. And I wasn't, I guess, in that sense, that was kind of hard for me to take. So I'd lose myself in my drinking because of that alone. You know, I wasn't close to my family at the time. And the people I considered to be friends down the Maiden, uh, close friends, began to alienate me and push me away out of their kind of their peer group. You know, and of course, when that was happening to me, I was drinking, drinking heavier to negate the pain of being pushed away from people that I wanted to hang out with and be friends with. And as a consequence of that, eventually um, I had a falling out with these people that I considered to be friends. And when that happened, I went my own way. 
and started uh, started a whole new new bars with a whole bunch of new people in my life. And my drinking didn't get any better, but it, it took a backseat to my my cannabis smoking. I can tell you that for a, for a fact. But at the same time, it was still prevalent. It was still heavily there. You know, it was a go-to. My go-to, the cannabis. Yeah, it worked. I got stoned and had a great, great time. And I come back to that one too at this point, some point in this podcast, and talking about my cannabis addiction as well. But not addiction so much as as a as a as a crutch in that process between cannabis, between drinking alcohol and cocaine. Definitely, cannabis played a big part of my life. But it didn't really suppress so much as the alcohol did for me. Alcohol was a big suppressant for me, and it was a big way of, an easy way for me to get access to something that was socially acceptable, and for me to get to a place where I could drink it and get fucking blotto pissed and hide my pain that I was experiencing. You know, if I had an issue with my girlfriend at the time, or a lover, or the friend, it wouldn't be long before I'd be finding myself in the bar, or down at the bottle shop, or the supermarket buying some alcohol and having a few drinks. And a few drinks turned to a few more drinks, a few more, and a few more. Now, my birthday, my 21st birthday, in fact, when I was down at Regine's, South Dunedin, we had a, it, was a, it was a joint 21st. It was about three or four of us, I think, together on a joint 21st birthday. This was my second year at university. This was a cry for help that no one heard, which left me kind of despondent. These people that I considered to be friends were more mad at me than anything else in my behavior. There was no, no one asked me if I was okay. They were just fucking pissed off with me. What I did that 21st was that I was, had a, took a shine to tequila laybacks, which is when you sit back in a, in a dentist's chair and someone grabs your mouth with a, a pourer of lime and a tequila and gives you a shot. And I had a big thing for it. it was suddenly I became, you know, that's my thing, my, my go-to thing, far and his labor as particular laybacks. So, yeah, I was heavily into this experience. I loved it. And I was just like, come on, let's do you know, all the people that I've gone to this 21st with. Let's do a layback. Let's do a layback. I ended up doing fucking 50. I did 50 laybacks in, in about three hours, less than three hours, right? So... I remember, the last thing I remember was someone had given me a bottle of tequila, of course, because I was a layback guy, right? So someone had given me a bottle of tequila. The last thing I fucking remember is having that bottle of tequila in my hand and drinking it straight and nicking the whole fucking bottle in someone's living room near, near where I was living in Northeast Valley. I don't remember anything else. I remember waking up. After that experience, I blacked out. I remember waking up after that experience in my friend, well, my friend, this cat, Tom's room, who was a friend then, for, but after this experience, not so much. I mean, I can understand why after what I did. I'm so sorry, Tom, for being that guy at that moment, but that's who I was at that time. I came to in his room, and I remember standing up, getting out of his bed, and stumbling around the walls, throwing up green luminous bile onto his wall, all over his floors in his room in his sleep-out room where he lived. Someone had put me into his room. Someone kindly had put me into his room over my own. And I remember walking around that room, throwing up all over the fucking walls and all over the place. Not only was it fucking disgusting, it was dangerous. I could have died. If I had fallen right on my back and choked on my own vomit, I wouldn't be here making this podcast with you. It was a cry for help. It really was. I was so despondent, so lonely, so afraid, 
and my friends and people I considered friends didn't even fucking like me. And this was part and parcel of my projection. I was projecting out into the world being a victim. I was a victim. This was me being the victim. The opportunities that presented themselves to me at that age were so many. And looking back at it now, I'm a very different person than obviously I was way back then. You know, this is, this is fucking 30 years ago. But if I look back at that experience now and think about how I'd live my life if I could do it all over again down there knowing what I know now, that's ridiculous, right? We can, we can go back on a, in a metaphysical sense and change the timeline by imagining and visualizing us having a very different experience. I've done it before, and it feels beautiful to be in that place. But also, it's, for me now, looking back at this, it's very rewarding to understand where this got me to and maybe the person I am today. So I woke up on the floor in Tom's room, eventually got up from puking over his fucking walls and through his bed, living this blow. It was fucking terrible, terrible. Managed to get back to my own bed somehow, and I was in bed for three fucking days with alcohol poisoning, and it was horrendous. It was fucking horrendous. And after that, they really lost all respect for me. They didn't really want to hang out with me really at all. You know, I can understand why. That drove me further into my alcoholism. It drove me further into that place where I was drinking heavier and being that guy that no one wanted to hang out with. People began to isolate me, and no one wanted nothing to do with me because the nature of my drinking was getting out of hand. I was drinking to excess when I was drinking. I was becoming a very unfun drunk to be around. Like before, I was a fun drunk. I was the kind of guy that was laughing, making jokes. I was the kind of guy that walked into a bar. The downstairs Captain Cook into the garden bar walked in there and would stand at the bar, stand in the middle of the middle of the bar with a friend of mine and go, "Right, let's unroll the drift net, see what we catch." Ridiculous. And we'd walk through the entire bar and we see a pretty girl that got caught in our drift net. We go, oh, we got to them. We go, oh, we got you. We got you. You're in our drift net. Are you going to go home with me or him? <laughs> That's the shit we used to do. And we used to get away with it. I had many a lover, many a beautiful lover by doing that and playing that game. <laughs> and it was great. Don't get me wrong, and that's another one as well. It's another form of fucking suppression and repression for me, another way of validating myself, looking for validation outside myself through sex. That's another one too. Fuck, I could keep going about myself. I could dissect my psyche for the next three or four podcasts. <laughs> but I did this. I drank to excess. My friends basically ostracized me. This is another story, but I'll go into this in this podcast at some point. They ostracized me and told me to fuck off. And that was it. I went down even further down the rabbit hole. I had to move somewhere and get into flatmates in the property I was living at. Now, an angel came into my life at this time called Helen Norman, my first real girlfriend. And my drinking was out of fucking control. And she kind of helped me reel it in a little bit. And eventually, her and I would be together. And we'd live together as well for about four or five months. We ended up moving to a backpackers called Manor Place Backpackers and we're managing that place. Now Helen decided to go back to Melbourne and leave and keep traveling at some point. She wanted to leave me, but she was worried about me because of the nature of my fucking drinking and the nature of the person that I was becoming. She was, she, was, she was a few years older than I was, maybe three or four years older than I was. And she was worried about me. She was worried about the nature of who I was becoming. She was like, this isn't good, man. I don't see this ending well for you. Right? 
But I was so fucking blown away by the fact that she was going to leave me. I was so distraught by that fact that she was going to go. My drinking got to the point where I was suppressing my feeling of being afraid of her leaving me. And here we we go again, another abandonment trigger, another feeling of rejection. And it wasn't those things. It was just naturally for her. It was her moving on with her life and deciding to go. And she wanted to go. And she you know, didn't offer me the chance to go with her. I totally can see why. I was still a boy. I was still a boy. And she was a woman. But she was kind to me and beautiful and wonderful. And she sincerely gave a shit about me, which was something that I never had from any other person in my life, especially at that time, apart from one other person, my friend Richard Jones, Jimmy Jones. You know, I had no one in my life that gave a shit about me, really. So what I was doing is I was drinking heavily and working in the backpackers. I'd come home quite some nights completely fucking tanked. And Helen was a big drinker too, but not as big as I was. We used to go to gigs together and I just get fucking more and more tanked with the idea that she was going to leave me soon. So what was I doing? Suppressing my anger and my fear of being alone, the anger at myself of putting myself in this situation in the first place and feeling rejected again. I'm not worthy of any love. I'm not worthy of someone's time, which is bullshit because she chose to be with me, right? But in my mind, my programming was all there. It was like, you're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. They're going to, she said, well, she's going to abandon you. She's going to fucking leave you. She's going to reject you. And that was my fucking go-to, straight to the booze. Yeah? So one night, I got fucking absolutely tanked. She was leaving in a couple of weeks. And there's this skinhead guy at the Crown Hotel. This bar I used to go to. These fucking great bands used to play there. Amazing bands. And I went down there one night, and I was fucking smashed as fuck. By Within about three or four hours of getting down there, I was just hammering back pints and jugs. Jugs and pints. And then I decided to um, go up the road to the Clarendon and have a couple of shots. And my thing was always to go from when I was drinking heavily, and I mean fucking heavily, uh, I was drinking at the Captain Cook, get smashed at the Cook, go to Foxy's, paint at Foxy's, which was a nightclub, till three, 3 in the morning, keep drinking till I could hardly fucking walk. And I'd walk down George Street, down the main road of Dunedin, about 3 a.m., walk down George Street, stumble down George Street, often find money on the fucking road, always finding money. The universe was providing me the money to buy more booze, find money, and I'd go down to the Clarendon, which was a good walk. It would sober me up a little bit. I'd get down there. I'd walk in the fucking door, and my man Euclid would be at the working behind the bar, would see me, get me a Steinlager and a shot. I'd walk in, nail the, nail the shot, have the beer, and give him the money. You know, I had a tab running in a couple of times. A big one, too. A big tab. You know, I was going in there. I'd be there till 5, 6 in the morning, and I'd roll home. And how long I go, where the fuck have you been? I'm like, I've been down at the Clary. She's like, what? And then one night, Helen was about to leave, about two weeks. This is the same night, right? I was talking about before. And uh, I walked into the bar after being at the Clary for a shot, came back to the bar, and Helen was there having a fucking mosh in the mosh pit. No, no, it's a mosh pit next to her and moshing and stuff. And I walked back to the bar and bought a drink, and I stand, stood there and watched her and thought, she's fucking going shortly. She's leaving me shortly. Another one is leaving me. Right, but I turned around and thought, you know what? I need to express my anger in some way. You know, I feel fucking angry at the fact, in fact, this is happening. I'm mean, out of my control, and I'm feeling angry about it. So what I did was I picked. There was a guy there, a skinhead guy. That I saw who was a fucking really nice guy. Who was a really nice guy. And I said to him, "Come on, I said, want to want to fucking go, cunt? Want to have a fucking want to go? Want to get a fight? Let's go have a fight." He's like, "What are you talking about, bro? Calm down. Calm down, mate. I'm not here to fight anyone. I'm not here to have a good time. That's it. Have a few beers. Have a dance. That's it. 
calm down. He was you know, reasonably, of course. He, was, oh, he wasn't there to have a fight. He was there just to enjoy himself. And what I did is I pushed him. And then Helen saw me, came running over, and, and she was like five foot nothing, five foot four. And she's like, fuck off home right now and fucking get out of here. Piss off. Just get out of here. She saw me. said, get the fuck out of here. Push me. So I left the bar, angry still, fuming, went back to the backpackers where we were both working. And I uh, got home, walked in there, and I was pacing up and down in the hallway, fucking smashed, pissed, like hammered, pissed. Pacing up and down in the hallway. And Helen came in, and she was pretty pissed as well when she got home. And she started yelling at me, what the fuck are you think you're doing, you dick? You got a fucking issue. You got a problem with this fucking shit. You need to fucking pull your head in. And she was right. You know, the way she went about it, okay, she was, you know, she had a point. She could have been a bit more compassionate, but at the time we were both fucking smashed pissed and she had a point. And she pushed me again. And I, I, I went back, I stood there and looked at her, and I came back at her and I pushed her and she fell over. And she just burst into tears. And in that fucking moment, I realized I'd become my father. It was the most shocking moment of my life. And I give you my word. That was the most shocking moment of my fucking life. I looked at myself, I looked at my hands, I looked at her crying on the floor, and even by this time, all the backpackers that were staying in the back in the backpackers had come out of their rooms because they heard us yelling and screaming at each other. Helen went to bed. I ended up going under, underneath the stairwell outside, and I ended up fucking crashing under there. Pissed as fuck. Underneath the stairwell. Now the owner came around the next morning. Heard the story from all the lunch backpackers, saw me underneath the fucking stairs, said, right, you've got like fucking 10 minutes to get your shit and get the fuck out of here, you're fired. Get the fuck out of here. Helen could stay, I had to go. I had nowhere to go that time. Nowhere to go. But I knew this. My days of drinking were over. I I had to stop. I had to fucking pull it in right there and stop right there. So I did. I did. My friend Jimmy, up the road from where I lived, him and his flatmates did me a kindness and put me up on their couch for a couple of weeks until someone moved out of the house and I got a room in the house and moved into that place. The manor place. But I stopped drinking. I stopped drinking in that moment. I stopped. Helen left and moved to Melbourne eventually. Back to Melbourne and from there I didn't hear from her. She rung me up once in manor place to see how I was getting on. And by then I had actually made the decision to learn how to meditate. Um, I said before in a podcast that I had a decision to make. I, had, I told my mother I was an alcoholic. I admitted it. And I said, look, I've got a choice here. I can go to Queen, Mar- Queen Margaret Hospital in Hammer Springs or I can learn how to meditate. And I chose to learn how to meditate. And that changed my entire fucking life. Now, what I did also as part and parcel of my own rehabilitation is that I went to a bar school course to learn how to attend bar, be a cocktail barman and a barman. So I wanted to be behind the bar and work behind the bar with alcohol and see the person that I was when I was drinking. And I had seven amazing years working bar and being head barman and being a barman and working as a bar manager around the world. Incredible, seven incredible years and never touched a fucking drop. Wouldn't go near it. I was working with it, pouring it, making cocktails, making drinks for seven years. Wouldn't touch it. But I saw the worst of the worst and the best of the best in that culture. I experienced it. I fucking loved it. 
I loved it because I was immersed in the culture, but I wasn't a part of it. I was the one that was in control. I saw the worst of the worst, as I said before, and the best of the best. Met some amazing people in the industry, made some incredible friends, had some amazing experiences, worked at the International Players Lounge in Perth, which is a nightclub owned by two millionaires, which brought the best DJs in the entire world and every genre to play at a club. That's capacity was like 275 to 300 people at the most. Fuck, had the most incredible time working there. It was so much fun. Other goodies came on board, which was <laughs> a different situation because I wasn't drinking, but I was doing other things. No, no doubt about that. But oh my god, it was the creme de la creme. It was the highlight of my 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 uh, my time working behind bar. There's nothing could come close to that experience. Working at that club in 1998 through to 1999, International Players Lounge in Perth, beneath the Sheraton Hotel, the former Orsini's was. The highlight was that was like there's my Everest of working in bars. There's no way I could go any further than that. That was it. I had to get out of there. That was it. Me working bar, I'm out. I did get a job at the Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver working bar, but I didn't have a working visa, so I couldn't work there. I could have applied for one, but it felt like it was time to be a spectator rather than someone working in a bar. Now, cocaine became a big part of my life. In Vancouver, but I tried it for the first time. I tried some really fucking good shit in Perth. <laughs> I had to get some through a friend of mine, for a friend of mine who bought for our club. Um, we had three, we had some some um, some DJs from Bristol come over. No names, but came over, wanted some, and so after me being who I was and my connections in Perth, I got some for my friends, my new friends, and they said, "Have try this." So I tried it first time and I was like, wow, oh my God, revelatory for me. It was massive. It changed my entire perspective on what it could feel like to be, to be high. Because for me, cocaine did the opposite of what it does for most people. It just, everything in regards to my mental processes and my, my verbal processes, the verbal diarrhea just shut off. Everything went quiet for me. It was a full court press so to speak there was nothing no thoughts just complete fucking silence in my, my head in my body and I felt complete I just didn't even need to say anything I would just take it and it would just bring me to a place where I felt completely at peace with who I was had the opposite effect on most people has on most people now maybe I am ADHD I don't fucking think so it's just not in the label but for me when I had cocaine Starting from that moment in Australia, I would just shut down. I'd feel incredibly great. I'd feel amazing about who I was, but I wouldn't have to boast about who I was. <laughs> my cockiness and my sureness just wasn't there. I didn't have that experience that most people have with cocaine. I wasn't fucking instant asshole. I was instant mouth shut. Instant mouth shut, instant shutdown of the mind. Just everything would just be quiet. Instant suppression of all my trauma and my pain and my wounding. All that would just evapor- evaporate. I'd be like, oh, egoless. Very bizarre experience at first, right? Very bizarre, but amazing. So getting to Vancouver where it was easily accessible, my habit became a serious fucking habit. Not too, not too long on me being there. Within a year, about within a year of being, me being there, my accessibility to this particular substance 
became very, very easy. Very easy. And what happened for me was that I was just smashing it. I became very good friends with my people that were close to me that were moving the stuff and selling it. And they were very kind to me. And I was just hammering it. Hammering it. I'm talking grams a day. And I had people around me that would, that would want to give me large amounts of it. I had people that once wanted to party with me all the time because of who I was in that particular network of friends. I was that guy. I was the guy that everyone wanted to hang out with. Me and Erin, my best friend at the time, Erin Dorman, we were the people, people wanted to hang out with us. They wanted to party with us. So they would just shower us with whatever they had. And often it was a lot of coke. And we fucking smashed it. Me especially. I had a serious issue with it. Because my suppression, with my pain, was at that point. If I got into a relationship with someone who I, who I was had the potential to get close to, I couldn't get close to them because if I got close to them, I could totally feel that sense of rejection and abandonment were coming out for me. The fear of getting close to somebody, of not feeling safe in a relationship because someone is going to abandon me and it's going to leave me, was so powerful and so forceful in my being that the only way I could actually supplant or actually to suppress, really, because it was suppression, the only way I could really get by and maintain a relationship with anyone, really, was to be high all the time. My trauma was that deep and also it was also that, that present in my life. I just would just ignore it to a large extent because I was always high. It was always there waiting to be healed, always waiting for me there, I was never too far away, but I never really put myself in the situations where I had experiences where I was triggered in that way, because most of my relationships weren't relationships. I had hundreds of lovers in Vancouver, and I literally mean hundreds. That's another part of myself, too, in regards to my sexuality, which I've talked about before. There's also a coping mechanism for me. I was coping with my pain, coping with my trauma in this way. Distraction, suppression, repression, all happening. All happening for me at this time. And with cocaine, it was abundantly clear to me that this was the, the substance that I needed in order to get by, in order to be able to hold myself together and to suppress how I felt, what was, what was going on inside me, what was coming up. Couldn't deal with it. So the way that, for me to deal with this, with this would be to suppress it, obviously, naturally. So I didn't have the tools, didn't have the, didn't have the patience I was terrified of seeing, looking in the mirror and seeing who I truly was and understanding that this is in order for me to be the kind of person I wanted to be, I had to go through this process of letting this all go. And that lack of control was just, you know, it was a big pill, big jagged pill I couldn't swallow. So I was always high, always fucked up. And my addiction to that substance put me in a place where eventually my best friend there and pulled me aside and said to me, look, we've got to get out of here, man. We've got to come back to your country when you were born and we've got to get clean. This shit is not fucking helping either of us. I can see that you've got a problem with it. And I think it's time for you to deal with the fact that you left your your home seven years ago and you have no intention of going back there, but I think we should go back there and get clean and get clean and clean up our act. We should go. And I agreed. I agreed it was time for me to go back. I couldn't keep bottling this in. I couldn't keep doing this. It, was, it was, wasn't productive, and in the end, it would have fucking killed me. I couldn't have done about that. 
I was doing so much of this fucking shit that I became a paranoid curtain twitcher. <laughs> I was so paranoid that the cops and the immigration police were going to come and get me and take me away. So fucking paranoid for the last six months of my life living there. Unfucking believable. I was so paranoid. And I had given up weed by then, by this time. It's another story. I'm sorry I haven't got enough time to talk about this here now, but I'd given up weed at the end of the probably, yeah, it was more like March, March, February 2002. I'd given up weed. I'd been had my ass kicked, literally kicked in the ass by the green bitch. She fucking smacked me in the ass so hard. This is my thing, though, I guess. I get hit real hard by the, by the substances I'm taking, and they teach me a big lesson. That plant medicine taught me a massive lesson, which I will talk about in another podcast. I came back to New Zealand. I got clean. I began to gather the tools, gather the people in my life, gather the, the, the courage to look at my issues and my traumas and say, right, now is the time to start dealing with this. It's, a, it's going to be a long journey. It's a present journey. I have to be present with the energy of this and move through it and gather the tools that I will need, get the information that I need to understand that moving through this experience means I have to push all this shit that I'm having in regards to distraction out of the way, push it to the side and say to myself, why am I doing this? What? How can I heal? This distraction has to stop. I have to start healing. This is where it begins now. And sobriety. None of this. None of more distractions, no more suppression, no more oppression. Action. Let's get into it. So I did. I began this journey of uh, self reflection and contemplation all over again. And being out of the limelight was quite interesting for the first few years being here. Because in Vancouver, I was literally a fucking rock star. I really was. And I loved it. My ego was just in heaven. I was a rock star in every way. I was having sex with hundreds of women. I was partying with incredible people who were giving me insane amounts of drugs. Always wanted to get me high. Loved being around me. Loved being the guy that was at the party who they get fucked up with and they just talk and talk and talk at me and I was listening because I, I didn't say a word. That went down well. You know, it was a very strange and fun time, but also tragic at the same time. It was, it was this, I was walking a knife edge, you know, between this falling down into a dark, dark place and being in this, on this walking, this line between that and on the other side of that line was this fun, incredibly, hilariously good time. But I was still not facing my demons, not facing my shadow. And it would come when I got back to New Zealand. I began to process, I began to go through this process. And, you know, 18, 19 years later, since being back here, when did I get back? 2002, 2003. So, what is it? 18, almost 18 years later. I have worked and done so much work in my sobriety. I've still partied a little bit over the years, but I've been straight edge for almost a, well, almost a year and a half now, almost two years. But, you know, I have worked through so much. And that's what I found as well in my own personal journey is that the more work I do on myself, the more consciously aware I become, the more I heal. All those things that I did back then, and if I had the opportunity to do them now and they're in front of me, I'm not interested. So I know that they take, take away from the essence of, my moment, of the moment that I'm having. 
I'm no longer need to suppress anything. So I'm doing the work and my shadow is being processed. I become more of a full human. I become spirit, more spirit than I have my humanness in that sense. More God nature rather than I have my, my humanness. My humanness is still there and plays a big part of my life. But my God nature shines brighter than ever due to the fact that I've done my work. I've gone through the process of this dark night of the soul, understood that by shining a light of awareness on my trauma and on my wounding, it's allowed me to become a better human. It's allowed me to become a more fuller human through my experience. And this is really amazing to get to that place where I realized that the substances that I was taking were just a distraction for me. They no longer need anymore because we are naturally high all the fucking time. If you're tapping into your spirit, into soul, in your heart, to them, everything, all that is and all that ever has been, you are always fucking high. <laughs> That's your natural state of being. That is your natural state of being. If you ground that energy into the earth through your lower chakras, through your lower energy centers, it becomes your natural state of being. That's what you are. You're always fucking high. But on different levels and variations of that. It's a beautiful place to get to. A powerful place to get to. And you know what? More than anything else, I'm no longer afraid to look in the mirror like I was for so many years. I'm no longer looking for any kind of distraction in my life. You know, I haven't had any kind of intimate connection with someone apart from Marion, my beautiful French girl I was with for a couple of months, for almost two years. And before that, for many years, I said no to people that were offering me themselves in a physical, sexual way. I said no to, what must be, about five, six years. No, 2016, 2017. I said no to maybe 300, 400 women that have come on to me. And that's not me boasting or bragging. It's just a fact. Because in that person that I was, identify myself was, my mantra, my feeling was, the most beautiful woman in the world constantly come on to me for sexual intercourse. And I ravished them in love. That's what I did. That's who I was. That's who I identified myself as being. And that was just another form of escapism for me. An egotistical escapism. The distraction. Looking for validation. Now, I don't need that anymore from anybody for the last few years. I don't need people's validation. I appreciate the fact that they want to look at my body and they want to, they, they see a value in it in a physical, sexual sense. It's, it's very flattering, but it's just not who I am. The essence of who I am now, the essence of who I am is that I am part of all things. I am everything that's ever has been and ever will be. I am source energy incarnate. I'm whole. My cup is full. I've gone through my dark night of the soul. I've healed in so many ways. I've healed. I've chosen to face my demons and understand that these have no meaning over my life anymore. Only if I give them. Only if I give these experiences meaning do they have any, any hold over my life anymore. And I don't. They don't. And it's a beautiful feeling to get to this place. To understand that, that those parts of my life, those experiences arrived, I can look back at them now and, and laugh at them, more importantly, and go, oh my fucking God, what was I fucking thinking? <laughs> what a great time I had doing that. What an amazing time I had doing that. But the balance, yeah, the balance, the, the scales tipped towards probably more bad than good, looking back at it now with a, a hindsight and looking back at it in a way that's not wearing rose-tinted glasses. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you got some interesting anecdotes out of this podcast. 
and some interesting stories and insights to me as a person. And of course, this can relate to my books, which I didn't get to in this episode. Unfortunately, I have money out of time here. It's almost uh, almost an hour. And I want to leave it here and continue on with this on another level, on another podcast. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. Mate wa. We'll talk soon. Didi-de-de-ho. Didi-de-de-ho.